The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy. Mission Solar operates a 200-megawatt facility right here in the U.S. that is producing 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Through state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality, Mission Solar's modules offer world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. America's booming solar industry now employs over 200,000 people, and Mission Solar is one of those proud employers. The company's 200-megawatt solar manufacturing facility supports 400 U.S. workers in San Antonio, Texas, directly contributing to America's burgeoning clean energy economy. Find out more about Mission's solar cells and modules at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. You know, it's often said that electric vehicles are the key to bringing back load growth for utilities in the U.S. But maybe there's another way, marijuana. After the November election, seven states and D.C. have now legalized marijuana for recreational use, causing a frenzy of entrepreneurial activity. 26 states have legalized marijuana for medical use. In Washington State and Colorado, where marijuana has been legalized for years, utilities are seeing a spike in electricity consumption. In Denver, for example, cannabis growers account for 2% of electricity use. In Washington State, grow operations could suck up more electricity than electric cars over the coming decades. This also poses a challenge to utilities, which are seeing increased outages and may have trouble addressing cannabis head-on because of the conflict between state and federal laws. This week's guest has been watching all of this play out, and we're going to learn about the energy impact of marijuana legalization, as well as the financial opportunity for clean tech in managing that energy use. In the second half of the show, we're going to discuss the legal, cultural, and environmental motivations behind the Dakota Access Pipeline protests that are rocking North Dakota. And then we'll end with a quick discussion about what comes next for Tesla now that it has acquired Solar City. In Washington, D.C., it's Catherine Hamilton. Hey, Catherine, how are you? I'm doing great, thanks. And in New York City is Jigger Shaw. Hey, Jigger. Hey, finally got out of my car. <laughs> That's right. I had re-recorded the intro last week because of a statement that Donald Trump made. And I'm sure people who heard the end of the show heard that Jigger was in his car, but um, I didn't mention it at the beginning of the show. So if you didn't hear that, um, Jigger was actually podcasting from outside of Starbucks in his car last week, which had some pretty impressive sound, actually. <laughs> Our guest comes to us from New York City as well. Tim Hayde is a microgrid specialist and a co-founder of Scale Energy Solutions, which is a startup looking to build renewable microgrids for indoor cannabis growers. Before that, he was designing microgrids for Energy Rudox, a company that specializes in cogeneration and backup power systems. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, big fan of the show. Really happy to be here with you guys today. You're not coming to us from your car today, are you? No, but I, I definitely did not notice that uh, Jigger was doing last week's podcast from outside of Starbucks, so it all worked out. <laughs> so a question that I have to start off is, why cannabis? So if I have the story correct, you took a look at a grower's energy bill a year and a half or so, or so ago, and you knew that this was the industry you wanted to serve. Tell us about the energy profile of marijuana growing operations and what compelled you. Sure. Um well, before I do that, I think it's important to note that um, the objective answer to almost every question about energy and marijuana is we don't really know. And this is actually one of the biggest challenges in dealing with energy issues in the cannabis industry is we simply don't have a lot of data, primarily because this industry has operated on the black market for so long. With that said, uh, the thing that really drew me to this industry is how big the energy challenges are. Uh, the best academic research done to date on this issue came out of Lawrence Berkeley National Labs in 2011, and the primary conclusion was that cannabis production consumes 1% of all U.S. electricity. And I'll be the first one to admit that when I first read this study a few years ago, I dismissed it as kind of crazy. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, sort of by happenstance, uh, a grower had reached out to me and asked me to sort of look at their energy bills. And after I looked at that one facility, some of the stuff that came out of that Berkeley uh, Labs report really started to make sense. And you fast forward a few years now, and we now have some real data out of states that legalized during the 2014-2015 cycle 
Uh, and it turns out that the 1% number might not be that crazy. Uh, for example, in Colorado, uh, right now, the cannabis industry is using about half a percent of all the electricity in that state. And that figure doesn't account for home grows or the black market, which is still a piece of the economy. So when you add that in, I, I still don't think you get to 1%, but 0.6% or 0.7% is a distinct possibility. So then if, if you take that scenario and you play it out, you know, where marijuana is legal in all 50 states, the industry's energy consumption has the potential to be the equivalent of about 3 million homes. Uh, and so that, that, that sort of raised a red flag to me. I believe it's a really big issue. And I think that we need more people in the clean technology industry to get involved in this so we can solve some of these problems. So let's just give people a sense of why these grow operations are consuming so much energy. Uh, they require a lot of uh, ventilation, AC, and of course, lighting. And historically, they've used uh, metal halide lamps or high pressure sodium lamps, which are you know, crazy energy sucks. And um, increasingly, they're using these grow operations are using LEDs, but more in an experimental fashion. Um, just sort of d talk about how these in indoor grow operations consume energy and why they're so intensive. Sure. So uh, to begin with, there's, there's three primary ways that legal cannabis is produced in the U.S. market. Uh, the number one question people usually have for me when I start talking about uh, the energy profile of the cannabis industry is why not just grow it outside? Uh, it turns out that today... Uh, only 2% of legal cannabis is grown outside. And for a host of economic, regulatory, and legal reasons, I don't think that's significantly going to shift moving forward. So in essence, we're going to have a situation where even in a best case scenario, 80% of uh, legal cannabis is going to be produced in either uh, indoor grow houses, which are essentially just converted warehouses, or greenhouses. Um, so then when you look at, you know, why the, this product in particular uh, uses so much energy, it really comes down to economics. And, and so there's three phases that uh, the cannabis plant goes through before you get the flower, which is ultimately uh, what is sold on the market. Uh, two of those phases, which represents about half the, the growth cycle, uh, require that you essentially bake the plant. 24 7 365 and you're doing that in essence by recreating the sun indoors um, and so out of that you get a huge lighting load the, the traditionally the way the industry has grown this product has been using high pressure sodium bulbs which are not uh, at all energy efficient and, and give off a lot of heat although there is some progress being made uh, from HPS vendors uh, in sort of reducing the energy profile it still uses a lot of energy and it gives off a lot of heat. That heat has to be dealt with. So that means you have a big HVAC load, a big ventilation load. Uh, there's a significant dehumidification load in, in a lot of areas of the country. Uh, and then there's sort of some odds and ends like CO2 injection and, and pumps for, for your water systems and things of that nature. Uh, and when you add all that up, it turns out that marijuana is the most energy intense manufacturing process in the United States today. Uh, by some estimates, producing a pound of marijuana uses 300 times more energy than producing a pound of aluminum. And so it's, it just is a very energy intense problem, uh, process rather. Because of that, I think it's a, there's a lot of really, really good opportunities for uh, clean tech companies and clean tech entrepreneurs to enter the space. So, you know, my, my start with the cannabis industry was really around in the 90s, when you looked at Real Goods and why Real Goods was actually in business, it was because the DEA under Reagan was going after cannabis growers, um, you know, by looking at their electricity bills, right? So the reason why there was so much solar purchased in Mendocino County is because a lot of folks were trying to hide their electricity bill. Um, so I think the solar industry and the cannabis industry have been in bed together um, for a very long time. You know, in some ways, we can say the solar industry was probably saved by the marijuana industry in the 80s and the 90s. Um, you know, I think going into today, though, one of the things that 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 I'm I've been concerned about, I've been looking at the marijuana industry probably for the past two years, um, just because I get a lot of inbound inquiries from folks, uh, is that 
the marijuana industry is a really fast growing industry. And because of that, you're seeing a tremendous amount of failure in the industry. So, you know, when when a company gets a bunch of money, that's great. But 50% to 70% of these growers are actually going out of business every two to three years, just because it's so fast growing. And, you know, um, it's not all boats are rising, right? It's similar to the solar industry, where you see some companies going out of business and other companies thriving, but overall, the industry is doing well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, there's there's kind of no getting around the fact that this is a, a very risky industry to enter. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that it's so dependent on policy and regulation. Uh, and we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but uh, the, the disconnect between federal policy and state policy is a, is a real issue in the space. Um, but there is a lot of risk. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that you see uh, the failure rates that you see is, uh, quite frankly, the people who are best at growing marijuana, who can produce the best product, are, are typically people who have been doing it for a long time. If they've been doing it for a long time, that means that their background is primarily in the black market. And that doesn't always translate well when you all of a sudden legalize things. A lot of these people... Uh, I think we're ha- sort of had a business model for how to operate in the black market, and that necessarily hasn't necessarily translated uh, into the uh, you know above board market, if you will. Uh, at the same time, as it's been legalized, you see a lot of people who are just entering the space from other industries who don't really know anything about growing marijuana, and I think they find uh, that it's a lot harder than perhaps they initially thought. And so I think the combination of those two factors is what leads to that failure rate you talked about. With that said, uh, I'm very confident, having looked at the industry, that that, that stuff is sort of going to work itself out over the next few years. And I think in the next few years, you're going to see a, a lot of really successful uh, companies uh, be built in the space uh, and, and perhaps expand uh, into other industries as well. So uh, I think it's a good point and, and, and certainly not something that uh, I want to dance around. But, but I do think that there's, I'm optimistic about the future. Yeah. So Tim, when you talk about policy, I think that there are two kind of big components. One is just our national federal drug policy and Senator Jeff Sessions, who has been proposed as the U.S. Attorney General, you know, made a joke one time that the Ku Klux Klan was fine. He thought they were fine until he found out they smoked pot. So I, I know he said that was a joke, but um, I don't imagine that if he is confirmed as Attorney General that he will uh, loosen restrictions, um, federal restrictions on pot. Um, that said, the other so so that as you've mentioned is one of the rubs, but the other piece is just the energy piece, and this really would just as the air conditioning in- industry when it increased significant load on our utility system or databases and computers as they've increased load, um, one of the best methods of you know, pushing energy efficiency is through our our appliance standards program through the Department of Energy. And this seems to be an industry that would be really well suited to having some kind of standards put into place so that you are making sure that you have the most efficient lighting and the most efficient processes for that industry. Yeah. And I think you brought up a, a few really important points there, Catherine. Um, you know, the first one is, is this is a real issue uh, when it comes to the the disconnect between federal and state policy. And I think Maybe this is worth talking about a little. I don't think people realize that despite the fact that uh, marijuana is still uh, or is now legal for recreational consumption in eight states in the District of Columbia, it is still absolutely illegal uh, for both medicinal and recreational purposes at the federal level. And when Colorado and Washington became the first states to uh, vote yes uh, in 2012, the Obama administration was sort of forced to deal with, with this issue. And the way they decided to do that uh, ultimately resulted in this thing called the Cole Memo, uh, which was essentially a policy put in place that said in states where cannabis is legal, the federal government's position is kind of going to be to look the other way. Uh, but like a lot of issues we talk about uh, with clean tech, uh, this wasn't a law. It wasn't passed by Congress. There's really nothing formal on the books. And so in theory, uh, that could be torn up on January 20th. 
Uh, I don't think it will, but, but that's certainly a possibility. Um, now, I think the next, another point you brought up is very important to talk about, which is Jeff Sessions. And uh, when, when uh, President-elect Trump announced uh, <laughs> Senator Sessions as his pick, uh, I happened to be at a cannabis industry conference with 7,000 people uh, from the cannabis industry. And I can tell you that uh, the consensus was basically that this was a worst case scenario. Uh, And and so certainly, uh, I think there's a a lot more risk of uh, conflict between the federal government and state governments today than there perhaps was uh, this time a a few months ago. Uh, And let's just be more explicit here. It's not even that the administration would not loosen laws, it's that they would crack down because there are still federal laws in place. So so the Obama administration looked the other way. And now we could see the federal government actually saying to states, no, absolutely not. This is a, a federal crime. And uh, that messes up the flow of money that makes lending risky, that blows up the entire industry potentially. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, frankly, just the way the policy and the laws are set up right now, it would be very, very easy for uh, the federal government to sort of destroy the industry. Uh, with that said, I, I don't think it's, it's going to happen. And, and the biggest reason I'm confident in that is just there's overwhelming public support for, the, for this process. And I think you saw that on Election Day. Um, of the five states that had recreational legalization on the ballot, four passed it. Uh, in the you saw similar results on the medicinal side. Uh, you know, a, a great data point was was Florida passed uh, medicinal marijuana use. Seventy one percent of people voted for that initiative. And you know, Catherine might know this better than I do, but I don't remember the last time uh, people in Florida agreed. Seventy one percent of people in Florida agreed on anything. Uh, so so it's that you know I, I think the will of the people is there, and and I think that'll prevent the federal government from really cracking down on this. Uh, But again, you know, there's just a lot of uncertainty in in the market today. So I want to talk about how that feeds into your business model. But I think we should learn more about what your business model is, because we have a lot of uh, engineers and investors um, and folks that would be interested in the type of microgrids that you're actually proposing here. So what's suitable for these type of indoor operations? Sure. So, um, you know, what our company and, and the guy, and you know, the men and women I work with have have really been interested in for a long time is pushing the issue on microgrids uh, because we believe that that microgrids are a big part of solving the broader climate change pro- problem. And I don't think enough innovation is taking place in the space. Uh, and so that's ultimately our mission: is try to um, get microgrids to a point where they can be uh, a, a real scalable solution. Uh, for climate change. The thing that attracted us most to the cannabis industry was we started finding uh, counterparties who really cared a lot about energy. Uh, And this is driven by a bunch of reasons, but the biggest thing is economics. Uh, In a lot of cases, we see facilities where 20 or 25% of their total operating budget is energy costs. And so in order to be competitive in state markets, you really have to be uh, a sophisticated uh, energy consumer. So, you know, it, when you're sort of trying to develop microgrid projects at the facility level, one of the hardest things to get is a time commitment from the executives at the facility you're working at. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, if you look at a hospital, for example, uh, big energy consuming industry, but most of the time, energy costs are less, less than 5% of their operating budget. And so when you go talk to an executive team about that, they might care a lot about the environmental footprint. Ultimately, they're typically driven by uh, fiduciary responsibilities. And it's just not practical for them to spend a ton of time uh, working with you to try to develop these projects. That's been the, the best surprise for us out of the cannabis industry is just um, how eager people are to learn about energy issues how uh, willing they are to sort of give you their time and, and talk about these issues. And so I think that's, you know, the biggest thing, albeit a subjective assessment. Um, from the technical standpoint, though, uh, 
these facilities have a technical profile that is ripe for all sorts of clean technology solutions, uh, both on the demand side and the supply side to be implemented. Uh, and the thing that makes them really attractive is they tend to have a relatively large electric and thermal baseload and pretty predictable variance. And so when, when, when you sort of add up those factors, you can do a lot of things in the cannabis industry that you can't uh, necessarily do in, in a lot of traditional industries. Uh, on top of that, and I think this is you know, getting back to Catherine's point earlier, um, I'm certainly not a policy expert, but my experience to date is that it's a lot easier to put policy in place when there isn't a precedent than, there, than it is when, when there is, it is a precedent. And so when you look at some, you know, Massachusetts or California, for example, they're going through this process right now, now that the ballot initiatives have been passed, that, you know, they're trying to figure out how to enact that into law. And I think, you know, they can very easily start looking at this, you know, energy problem and put some practical regulation in place uh, that sort of helps address this issue. And I think that's just frankly easier to do because there's not a lot of people uh, to fight, you know, for precedent, if that makes sense. So this space certainly has a lot of um, attention right now that I'm hearing where it's where either it's like Scott's miracle Grow, who's started a marijuana equipment division that features LED lighting, or whether it's Envirotech Greenhouse Solutions that has humidification solutions or your company. It, it just seems like it's not clear to me that, you know, that you can really, you know, like figure out which company is going to be around and which company is not going to be around. Yeah, and I, you know, I think every issue you just brought up is a completely legitimate concern. Um, truthfully, uh, and, and this especially pertains to the financial aspects of doing anything in the industry, whether it be uh, direct growing or auxiliary service provision, um, there there is a lot of risk, and and you know, a lot of these companies don't have credit ratings. You know, the traditional metrics that financiers would look at. Uh, to evaluate credit worthiness don't exist. Uh, my perspective on it has kind of been that this is a big enough problem and a big enough opportunity that figuring that stuff out is is worth it. And so, you know, I don't look at this that dissimilarly uh, from where the solar industry was when you when, when you started Sun Edison, right? Um, there was a product that could add a ton of value, and and I think in the case of cannabis, there are a ton of clean tech products that can add a lot of value, but uh, deploying those is, is difficult, right? There's legal challenges, there's financial challenges. And so we just need a lot of smart people to enter the industry and, and start getting to work. Uh, I think all the problems we have are solvable, but uh, they're not going to be solved without a lot of effort. And, and so hopefully that's something that starts to happen uh, in the short term. Okay, so I get it, Tim, but, but ultimately um, not all problems can get solved, right? I mean, it may be the case that it is literally not possible to figure out which companies are going to succeed and which ones aren't going to succeed right now. And if you can't do the underwriting, you just can't project finance the space. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a legitimate point. I don't want to underplay any of these issues. I think they're real challenges. And uh, frankly, I don't have an answer. But he, here's what I can say. Uh, when you look at the data um, and, and sort of the analyst projections post uh this our latest election cycle, uh, it's predicted that this industry is going to be do you know something in the neighborhood of twenty three billion dollars of revenue uh, in twenty twenty. Uh, for reference, that's basically uh, twice the size of the NFL. And so you know my sort of bet is that when you have that amount of upside, it will attract the financial community. Uh, with certainty, I think it's going to be a riskier investment landscape, certainly in the short term. Uh, but for those financial institutions that are able to figure out how to pick the winners, there, there's a huge amount of upside. Uh, you know a lot more about this than I do, but uh, from the people I know in the financial industry, uh, that tends to be an attractive uh, <laughs> sort of value proposition to pursue. Uh, and so, you know, we'll see what happens, but, but it's certainly something that's going to take a lot of smart people getting together and, and trying to figure out. So, Tim, another stakeholder I would think that would have interest would be uh, the electric utility industry because they love consistent 
baseload. Um, it's been tough for them as we've become less energy intensive, but have increased peak. And peak doesn't look like it's going away, but this kind of industry that you said has pretty consistent load might look really attractive to them. What what have you heard from utilities and could they potentially be allies in this? Yeah, it's a great question, Catherine. And like many things, I, I used to know the answer to this question. And now Donald Trump is our president. Um, but I had a lot of conversations with utility folks prior to the election about this. Uh, they haven't really been picking up the phone since. Um, but I, I think prior to the election, the utility industry, like most of us, kind of had planned on an outcome that didn't occur. And with, with that planning, I think many of them had assumed that either the clean power plan or something like that would be enforced. And when you take that as a given, uh, their strategy for dealing with, with the cannabis industry was essentially they had to do something because the load growth that was coming uh, post-legalization, I think, was really going to hurt their ability to hit emissions targets. Now we're in a completely different environment because I think it's pretty well understood that the, the clean power plan is, is, is likely dead on arrival. Um, and, and it's very unlikely that anything substantive is going to replace it in the short term. Uh, so I think the question is, you know, more broadly, what are utilities going to do? Are, are they going to, uh, you know, sort of take a step backwards and, and be, have a more regressive approach? Or are they going to uh, sort of execute the plans that they've uh, generated to date and, and, and try to uh, continue to on a path towards carbon reduction? Uh, I think that's kind of an unknown in general. And I think, you know, where they come out on the cannabis uh, situation will likely be consistent with where they come out on the broader, you know, climate action strategy. Uh, But, you know, I don't think anyone really knows what the industry is going to do yet. But in a perverse way, Tim, it does actually increase kilowatt hour sales. So I would think whether or not you have any kind of clean power plan, you still have the ability for utilities to increase their rate base. Yeah, you know, that's absolutely true. I mean, there's a, the industry is consuming a lot of electricity and utilities make money selling electricity. So there, there's definitely a, an economic uh, consideration uh, that utilities are looking at when, when they're considering how to address this problem. What I will say is utilities run into a lot of the same uh, risk challenges that that Jigger was bringing up before. And I think they're struggling with them. And and for example, in Colorado, one of the things we see is a lot of these grow facilities are being stood up in uh, retrofit warehouses. So in Denver, for example, uh, I visit a a place that used to be a mattress warehouse that's now uh, a cannabis grow operation. And what happens is, you know, you have a, let's say you, bu- you know, buy a mattress warehouse, you come in, you have a 400 amp incoming service, then you retrofit the facility with all the lights and, you know, ventilation components and dehumidification components you need. And all of a sudden you need a 4,000 amp uh, service entrance. And so that, that, that's a huge, uh, you know, cost burden for the utility. So they have to come, you know, upgrade the service, in some cases, build new substations and, you know, they don't know if that company is going to be in business in a year or two later or whether it's going to revert to a mattress factory. And so I think utility industries have some upside in this and there's some risk for them as well. Um, and I think it's an opportunity for the utility industry and the clean tech industry to work together and try to figure out what the optimal solution is. And I think that's ultimately a combination of energy efficiency on the front end, uh, a distributed generation component, uh, and then integrating with the traditional grid infrastructure but I think that can be done in a smart way that sort of benefits all parties, uh, which is why I find it appealing. But until then, you have a pretty mixed bag for utilities. For example, the Bonneville Power Administration, um, which is a federal power administration, you know, do- doesn't want to assist or work with utilities that are served by that administration that are serving grow operations. Um Furthermore, banks that have federal deposit insurance can't lend to these um, grow operations and retail outlets. And so for utilities and therefore for financial institutions, you just have uh, 
really high risks right now because of the disparity between state laws and federal laws. So many utilities just won't touch this stuff. Um, you know, you have some utilities in Washington or in Colorado or in Oregon that are setting different rates for grow operations, but uh, it's still really utility specific. They won't touch it with a 10 foot transmission pole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I think. But there are some utilities that are approaching the space, right? Like there are a handful that have reached out to grow operations specifically and set new tariffs. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, ultimately, this is going to be an issue where performance talks, right? And so there's 3,000 different utilities in the United States. I don't need all 3,000 utilities uh, to want to work with me. I, I just need a handful. Uh, and if there's a handful of utilities that are, that are willing to sort of think more progressively about how to deal that, with this issue, uh, and we can assemble the right, you know, constituency of clean tech professionals and contractors and legal people and financial people to make these projects work, ultimately, I believe that we can just do this in a better way, uh, do this in a way that's, that's cheaper, cleaner, and, and more resilient for the customer, uh, and ultimately benefits uh, all of the parties involved uh, more than the status quo approach of just going with the grid infrastructure. Uh, and, and that's ultimately the bet. If we can do this better than the utility alone can do this, then I think we'll get traction. And if we can't do that, I don't think we'll get traction, uh, but I'm pretty confident. And so ultimately, I just think it's a matter of getting some of these projects in the ground, figuring out the right way to do it, uh, and then using those results to convince the next set of utilities that might be a little bit hesitant for many of the very real reasons you guys just brought up, uh, that, that there's a better way to do this. I guess what I would say, though, is that, I mean, we're, we're at an early stage, which is fine, but given the regulatory risk, et cetera, I think this is going to be a cash business. I think that in general, we're going to be forcing a lot of these marijuana growers to pay upfront um, for a lot of this infrastructure, which will make it difficult for more expensive infrastructure to get in. Because a lot of these big Wall Street investors who are investing in these guys, I think, are looking for lowest first cost because uh, they just don't know how long their investment's going to work out. Yeah, and these retail outlets are cash businesses. I mean, you read stories all the time of these companies that can't get loans from the bank, so they just have a couple of safes in the back, and they just run a completely cash business. Yeah, again, I think these are all very real problems, and, and absolutely what you just said is happens all the time right now. So are you taking hundreds or 20s? Again, <laughs> yeah, I mean, again, yeah, we... we, we it's kind of funny. Like one of the things we looked at is how do you pay for a $3 million energy project in cash? Uh, it's harder than you would think. But the, uh, you know, I, I think ultimately, right, it just comes down to uh, do you think that a $23 billion revenue business is unbankable? Yes. Um, yes. No, I, I do with, think it's unbankable right yeah. now. I think until Jeff Sessions figures out how to make his piece, which may involve smoking some marijuana, like... He, you know, I do think this is unbankable. And I do think that for many of us who are, you know, quasi banks, I don't think institutions are going to play in this. I think that for us, we're a little bit more flexible because we're all funded by we're funded by family offices that generate. But for a lot of the folks who have any FDIC restrictions or, um, you know, or other like sort of restrictions, I, I think this is going to be very difficult to finance. Again, no argument for me. I think I think the key is. Is it difficult or is it impossible? The, the, the bottom line is, I think that when you look at this industry, there's no avoiding the fact that this industry is associated with very unique risks that are very real things. But there's huge upside. And ultimately, what I'm betting on is the fact that when you have an industry that's going to generate billions and billions and billions of dollars of revenue in the short term, that will attract financiers we're interested in figuring this stuff out. And in fact, we've already seen that as there are a lot of sort of boutique investment firms that have been stood up to, to service the cannabis industry. Um, now, again, I think there's no getting around the fact that there's more risk in this industry today than there was prior to the election. Um, but again, for, for sort of a, a multitude of reasons, when you sort of look at all the, the pros and cons, I don't think that this will be a priority issue for the federal government. And so I don't think you'll see a huge federal crackdown on the states. 
Um, and, and therefore, I think you'll see state markets grow and thrive. And in that event, I think the, the finance industry will follow. Um, but, but again, I think the points that Jigger uh, brought up are, are all real concerns. And, and ultimately, that's just going to be evaluated by individual financiers on a case-by-case basis. Well, by 2030, the industry will be spending 3 to $5 billion a year on energy if uh, the trajectory continues. Huge opportunity for clean tech and for utilities generally. We'll see if they can capture that upside without getting um, overtaken by the downside. Tim Hayde is the co-founder of Scale Energy Solutions. He came to us from New York City. God, this is a fascinating space. Um, you know, the there's the risks are just incredible here, but certainly a, a wide open opportunity. So we'll see if you guys can capture it. Thanks, Tim. Let's turn now to a story that continues to intensify, the protests over the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota. Since April, the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe has been blocking construction of a key piece of an 1,100-mile pipeline intended to bring northern North Dakota shale crude down to Illinois for refinement. On the surface, this seems like another example of anti-fossil fuel protesters blocking another pipeline, but it is far more complex than that. The Standing Rock Sioux are blocking the pipeline where it would cross under the Missouri River, close to a lake that provides drinking water for the tribe. And um, it should be noted that that pipeline was previously rerouted because it threatened urban drinking water. Um, The tribe also claims that the state of North Dakota, the Army Corps of Engineers, and the developer and energy transfer partners did not properly consult them before siting the pipeline. And there's currently a case playing out in federal court This has caused the feds to question whether they need to revisit the consultation process between the government and Native Americans on similar types of infrastructure projects. And Energy Transfer Partners has in recent months unleashed private security contractors bearing water cannons in freezing temperatures, rubber bullets, dogs, and tear gas to break up the protests. Those attempts have only strengthened the resolve of activists so far although many have gone to the hospital and have been arrested, and one tragically had her, har- had her arm nearly blown off by a concussion grenade. To the Sioux and to other Native American activists who've joined them in blocking the pipeline, this fight isn't just about clean drinking water or about blocking fossil fuels. It's about upholding their sense of pride and fighting against the forces that have trampled over Native Americans for the last 300 years. So allies have poured in across the country in support, and the legal case continues to play out. Catherine, this is admittedly like a very complex story. And I've only come to realize the complexity of the story in the last couple of months, even though it's been ongoing since 2014 and really heated up this spring. You know, some press outlets have been criticized for not covering it enough. This is the first time we've covered it, of course, or oversimplifying it. Um, how is this different from, say, the, the fight over Keystone XL in 2011, 2012? Yeah, so the policy difference is that Keystone is an international issue, whereas this is cross-state issue. And you're right, it's super complex, um, because this has to do with treaty issues and, um, you know, nations that um, really feel like their their land rights, but then also their public health and water safety issues are at risk. So what I did was I thought there's got to be a real public policy issue here that I can dig into since that's what I'm that's what I do. So I contacted the Sierra Club um, because I knew they had been involved in some other court issues regarding land use and eminent domain and they're not legally involved in this issue but what they have been working on is the permitting process. So the Army Corps of Engineers under the Clean Water Act has this nationwide permit 12, NWP 12, that is being used to fast track this type of project. And this permitting process was intended for water crossings as in crossing ditches or regarding docks for boats, um, for minor infrastructure. This is not really minor infrastructure. This is 1,200 miles of pipeline. It's cross-state Um, And yet it was still fast tracked. So part of the issue is really about how we permit projects. And that's really what they're trying to get at is, you know, if you permit projects that are done in a very piecemeal way that would 
really are intended to, to, to cross very limited distances, then you're not dealing with a pipeline and a more holistic process that allows for environmental review and a full public process and tribal consultation, which had that been done, perhaps we wouldn't be in this really tragic situation that we're in right now. And part of the legal dispute is over this uh, 1992 federal law, which requires Native American groups to be consulted whenever a project like this takes place. And so the Sioux tribe um, basically said that the federal government didn't consult them early enough in the process. Uh, The Energy Transfer Partners um, was developing the project on burial grounds that if a local contractor had been used would have known they were sacred grounds. And so Although they were consulted, they claim they weren't consulted early enough in the process and that the project had already gone forward and had been fast-tracked, as you said, Catherine. Yeah, because if they had consulted the archaeologist who understands about the sacred sites, that archaeologist could have said, look, just avoid this area, and it would have saved a lot of time and money and uh, heartbreak in the process. And then there's a a whole other land rights issue. So the protesters, they don't like calling themselves protesters, I should note. They call themselves water water protectors. protectors. Exactly. I've been calling them activists. Um, The the, the protectors are partly on private land. And... um, that's they they claim that the Standing Rock Sioux tribe claims that this land was taken away from them in the 1800s and it was never recognized by the federal government so there's this legal dispute over whether or not that land is actually theirs which is adding complexity to this issue so re- the relationship between the federal government and these native american tribes and the deep scars for how these tribes have been treated and had their land stripped away from them are huge part of this dispute. Jigger, do you want to weigh in here on the significance? Well, you know, I, for me, I think that I couch this less in the Native American um, sort of piece of this, although, you know, it's a tragic story, what's happening there, and more around really the influence of Josh Fox and the anti-fracking movement. I think that when you look at the number of pipeline projects that they've killed in Connecticut and in in New York and lots of other areas. I mean, this is, I think, you know, sort of successful in terms of a protest movement because Josh Fox spent, you know, the better part of three or four years building up this movement and donors and funders. Um, and you've got Mark Ruffalo and Shailene Woodley and all of these famous people who are involved now. And you know, I think that it's real credit to Josh Fox. I mean, I think to the movement here, and then you know the the Standing Rock Tribe just happens to be the um, the penultimate sort of you know expression of frustration around natural gas and fracking and pipelines, and you know their attempt to find weak spots within the natural gas fight. Yeah, the Sierra Club um, person said that definitely this movement has resonated across the country. There are lots of people who are showing support um, in indigenous communities and other communities. But just from uh, an economic perspective and from a use perspective, it just the project doesn't make sense in a lot of different ways. So, you know, oil prices are low. There's not really any need for this type of pipeline infrastructure. It just doesn't make financial sense or use sense. So one of the public policy issues um, that is at play here is that in January, January 1st, these shipping contracts have to be renewed. And in order to get a shipping contract, you have to plan to ship something. So if there is really no need to ship something, those contracts for this oil will really um, be at risk. And that's another way, in addition to the permitting and in the White House and Army Corps, perhaps being able to not grant the permit um, for the and the easement, um, that you could also have this contract issue of really just not making any economic sense to do it. Well, I have a different take on this jigger. You know, I wonder if the celebrities and the climate activists who have come in, if they've co-opted this movement and made it about something else. One of the things that's appealing to me about this story as I've started paying more attention to it is the fact that it it, it goes 
you know, it's, it represents the deeper struggles that Native Americans have faced in their relationship with the government. But now you have a lot of these climate activists who've come in and sort of rebranded it. And I wonder if, if, it, if it's, you know, co-option here. Oh, no, I think we're saying the same thing. My point is that the fact that Josh Fox had tens of thousands of followers and had this entire infrastructure of people who are anti-fracking and then anti-natural gas pipelines, because that's what they found was the soft underbelly of how they could, you know, kill a lot of these natural gas um, fracking sites was to kill some of the pipelines that were taking the natural gas from the Marcellus to, you know, their markets. Um, They already had a built-in infrastructure set up. And then when you had this heartbreaking story of Standing Rock, they were able to actually bring a tremendous amount of firepower, even with that firepower, he wasn't able to really break through the media cycle because of the presidential election until recently. Yeah, I just don't want to discount the efforts of the people there to, I mean, he may be amplifying, but um, there, the movement is really, has, is really based on the indigenous people who live there and feel like you know, their, their environmental justice, their sacred lands, their, their rights are being trampled on. Oh, no, I'm not disagreeing, Catherine. I'm just saying that, that these corporations have a very effective way of trampling people's rights. I mean, whether it's economic justice areas around, you know, like poor people who live in the wake of coal plants, or whether it's pipelines that are getting, you know, built in lots of areas where they're Um, you know, folks who don't have a lot of power to stop them, you know, like in general, these infrastructure projects either get killed by billionaires who are very good at like, or doing the courts, whether it's electric transmission lines or natural gas pipelines, or they get stopped by a bunch of celebrities and others who bring a bunch of firepower to the thing. I mean, if, if the mainstream media had not covered this story, this would have been dealt with and killed a long time ago. And the mainstream media, was um, very slow to come on to this story. And admittedly, I was sort of slow to pay attention to it as a result. And only when I kind of realized the historical um, context of this story did it become super interesting to me. Now, beyond that, the question that I have is whether fighting pipeline infrastructure and fossil fuel infrastructure and the the co-option of this type of battle among environmentalists is now going to be the central strategy of the environmental left under a Donald Trump administration. So is this indicative of what we're likely to see over the next four years? Well, I think it may be the only way that people can fight because there are a lot of agencies that have to weigh in on any project like this, federal agencies, um, EPA, Department of Interior, certainly Army Corps, um, and the White House. And, you know, while the White House right now could do some things that would delay this particular project from going forward, I think for a lot of other projects, it's going to be, um, it's going to be tough based on the people that we're hearing might be leading those agencies. Well, and, and I think the nuances here matter. I think that, you know, the ability of the environmental movement to have these types of protests has I think basically gone away. Most of the environmental movement has shifted to hiring tons of people in Washington D.C. to kill things through government regulation. My sense is is that um, where the environmental groups are going to be most effective with Donald Trump is raise six hundred, seven hundred million dollars worth of money into a fund that actually then pursues this stuff in the courts with folks wearing you know suits. And then just a, as one final point and aside here. Donald Trump actually held stock in the pipeline developer Energy Transfer Partners worth uh, over half a million dollars. And the CEO of the company donated $100,000 to the Trump Victory Fund. So there are some direct political ties to this company. And most people believe that the Trump administration will do anything it can to get the pipeline approved. And now the Army Corps of Engineers has said it's going to give the protesters another week before it tries to kick them off the land, but it's not clear exactly how they would remove them because they said they wouldn't forcibly remove them. So my guess is that they stay there, and this fight continues as it works its way through the courts. All right, that brings us to the third topic. We're just going to briefly talk about Tesla and Solar City, and it's official. Tesla now owns Solar City. 
With very little resistance from shareholders, Elon Musk crossed off another to-do item in his master plan and bought SolarCity for $2.5 billion. And that's roughly half the price of SolarCity's all-time high. The majority of Tesla investors clearly believe in Elon Musk's long-term vision of dominating the consumer energy landscape. We're all kind of waiting and hunting around for details on the so-called synergies that will come from this deal. And, um, you know, the two companies themselves haven't released much, aside from Musk talking a lot about the solar roof. We're poking around trying to figure out where changes are going to take place first. Jigger, what are you keeping your eyes peeled for now that this is a combined company? I mean, I really think this is all about sales and marketing, right? And I think I've said that over and over again. Um, you know, Elon Musk has a unique way of reaching out to customers and getting folks excited and, you know, really sort of, you know, revving up sales on the Tesla side. Um, I think the question becomes, is he going to be able to do that on the Solar City side? Because, um, you know, the, the U.S. solar industry, particularly the residential industry, is really far behind where Australia achieved it within a five-year period, where Australia reached one in seven households. I think the U.S. industry can match that feat um, with the economics of solar today, with the extension of the tax credit. So um, it'll be interesting to see whether they really focus on figuring out the sales and marketing you know, dilemma here. Yeah, it's interesting to me because the um, energy storage piece of Tesla has been, they're very quiet until they've got something in the ground. So this project in American Samoa, which is uh, 600 residences that are fed from a 1.4 megawatt microgrid that they can go three days without sun based on um, 60 Tesla power packs that they have installed. I mean, nobody knew that that was happening until it was completed. And um, it'll be interesting to see how that meshes with what so sort of Solar City's um, very outward-facing mode most of the yeah, time. Yeah, that's probably one of the biggest public-facing changes that we're going to see. Elon Musk, in numerous speeches, has um, shown that he wants to work directly with utilities. And Peter Rive, the CTO at Solar City over the last year, has been more conciliatory. Uh, you know, Ryan Hanley in uh, Sol in Solar City's grid modeling unit has uh, talked a lot about how they're going to work with utilities on infrastructure as a service. John Wellinghoff, of course, speaks utility language. So, I think the combination of Solar City's strategy before it was bought up by Tesla and Elon Musk's, you know statements about wanting to work with utilities and the push to develop the grid scale storage solution, the power pack is evidence that this company is going to take a much different public strategy in how it works with utilities and the types of projects it develops. Um, does anyone agree or disagree with that? I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm really sensing a different approach to how the company works with traditional actors. No, look, I mean, I certainly think that Tesla as a company has been working with utilities. One, because the electric vehicles are supposed to be providing more demand and more sort of stresses on the grid, which then allows them to rate base more, you know, infrastructure, which is a self sort of fulfilling prophecy. And so, um, so I think that's good. And then the microgrid industry as a whole has been very much embraced by Exelon and, and others, Duke. And so, my, you know, my sense is, is that you're right. I think the challenge is, is that the the enthusiasm and the votes for a lot of the legislation that you know Tesla is using to push through all these battery mandates and a lot of these other things are coming from folks who support net metering. And so they have to reconcile the fact that they have to keep the flock enthusiastic while at the same time selling the utilities. If they, if they just partner with the utilities, then they won't be able to pass any new legislation, which means that you know, they won't actually be able to force the utilities to deploy. There was one thing that was really troublesome to me during the investor vote. When the votes came in and Elon Musk took the stage and he took questions from shareholders, they wanted to talk about nothing but the solar roof and he wanted to talk about nothing but the solar roof. This is a pretty limited economically serviceable market thus far. Solar City as a company is going to, you know, hit a million solar roofs here in the next couple of years. Um but meanwhile, their growth has started to slow. Uh, they're switching from PPAs and leases to loans. Their customer acquisition costs have grown. And there are some pretty fundamental questions associated with SolarCity's business model that were glossed over 
because Musk and shareholders wanted to focus on this solar roof, which is a pretty small market thus far. And that really worried me. Um, They're picking up a company that is at half the value of its uh, market high and faces some pretty fundamental financial challenges. And none of those have gotten addressed publicly by Musk or by the SolarCity team. And, uh, you know, there are investors like David Einhorn who are really worried about it, but the majority of shareholders just don't seem to care. Well, look, I mean, you know, we just elected Donald Trump president, right? People love a wag the dog strategy. Um, You know, I don't want to talk about the solar roof. I think the solar roof is like not a real product yet. Now, when I actually see spec sheets on their website and actually get pricing from them officially and all those things, then we can talk about it, right? But right now, they I mean, the solar roof was clearly um, announced way too early on purpose so that Elon Musk didn't have to talk about the rest of these things. And he has every right to be able to do it as long as people don't hold him accountable. Completely agree. And that strategy worked very well during the shareholder vote meeting because he was allowed to gloss over everything. Well, we're going to be uh, searching around for more clues, as are a lot of other media outlets. So we'll keep you updated when anything actually major happens. But we wanted to just mention the fact that this happened because we haven't covered it in the last couple of weeks since the shareholder vote. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know now to wrap up the show. Catherine, what's your story this week? Yeah, so I'm back to my uh, FERC line here. Um, And I missed it last week. I didn't mention it, although I I hadn't known about it. But so FERC issued a NOPER, which is a Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, on November 17th. And it was to integrate electricity storage into organized markets. And this is about energy storage, but it's bigger than energy storage. So what this rule proposed rulemaking, which they're going to be taking public comment on and then going through a rulemaking process, would require each regional transmission organization or independent system operator to establish a participation model consisting of market rules that recognize the physical and operational characteristics of energy storage and accommodates that participation in the wholesale electric markets. And it also will define distributed energy resource aggregators as a type of market participant that can participate in wholesale electric markets. And this is for, um, when you talk about wholesale electric markets, this includes energy markets, capacity markets, and ancillary services markets. So this could potentially really set the stage for compensation of a variety of flexible resources that are on the edge of the grid that will be able to participate much more holistically in the wholesale market and in the larger grid system and really kind of change the way we use and value electricity. I was chuckling here as you were describing that, imagining FERC staffers briefing Donald Trump on those details and explaining the consequences and seeing his eyes gloss over. Well, he's going to be able to appoint uh, several uh, commissioners and a chairperson, and we'll see how that goes. Um, But the process is in place, and I feel like, um, you know, it'll be on track. Jigger, what is your story this week? So I want to talk more about nuclear subsidies with Exelon. Um, So they look like they're at the finish line in Illinois to get um, their nuclear plant. Excuse me. Excuse me. I can start over. Um, So I want to talk about uh, nuclear subsidies with Exelon again in Illinois. They look like they've gotten to a final bill with the governor around uh, providing new subsidies to keep their nuclear plants running for a minimum of 12 years. Um, And they have agreed to some community solar and community wind projects as well as greatly expanding utility-run energy efficiency programs. But what's interesting is that they made it clear that they would not allow this bill to pass if there was an open, well-functioning, market-based wind and solar industry. Um, So what's interesting is that Exelon gave on certain points on solar and wind to try to get some votes, but would not actually create a real partnership with the renewable energy industry. And as a result, they lost the Illinois Manufacturers Association, which generally works with them. They lost the Illinois Black Chamber of Commerce, the Illinois Retail Merchants Association, and many other folks who wanted them to partner deeply with the energy efficiency and renewable energy sector. And Exelon chose to figure out how not to do that and still carve up enough votes to get their subsidies. Did they not read your piece with David Duchovny? Clearly, they do not believe in the (laughs) X-Files. The Exelon files. Exactly. 
Well, I just had another Donald Trump anecdote, and you know, we can just like chase our tails around all day about what he is and isn't going to do, and I don't want to hang on this anymore because we had two shows speculating on what a Trump administration would look like. But after Trump did make his statement at this meeting last week with the New York Times saying he would keep an open mind about climate change, his chief of staff, Reince Priebus, um, said his default position is that climate science is a bunch of bunk. And I just wanted to let that hang out there. Um, Again, we can speculate about what President Trump will or will not do. But the chief of staff of the next president of the United States has come out and said that he believes the president and, and, uh, you know, therefore, this has been the default position of the GOP, largely in Congress, that climate science is a bunch of bunk. And um, I think that should sort of, until we get real policy ideas and figure out exactly what's going to happen here under Congress and the administration, I think that should sort of guide how we feel about the approach this administration is going to take. And with that, uh, we're done for the week. We're actually going to be off next week, unfortunately. A lot of travel for me, and we're not able to record, but we will be at the Storage Summit, so we'll hopefully see some of you there in San Francisco. And... um, in the meantime, you can listen to all our back, back episodes on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, iTunes. Subscribe to us on any podcast app of your choice. Send us an email at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. And then uh, send us a tweet or connect with us on Twitter on our individual accounts. We love to hear from our listeners. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey. And we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time.